When I was around 15, me and my friends were driving around going to all the haunted places around the basin. It was getting close to Halloween, so as is tradition, we were all trying to scare each other. First we went to a place called the Haunted Woods. This is an actual business, not a place in the woods. Then we went to an abandoned hotel near the Ute Reservation. Nothing of significance happened there. We didn't see or hear anything, and we were just goofing around and having fun. Then the driver says we were going to Skinwalker Ranch. I had never heard of Skinwalker Ranch, but I had heard plenty of stories of skinwalkers. I was intrigued at first, but as we dropped down the hill back behind the property, a feeling of total dread settled on me, like a heavy blanket. Everyone in the car got more and more quiet, like they were feeling the heaviness too. I don't think we should go here. I spoke softly. All we're going. The driver announced there's no moon tonight and no flashlights allowed, he continued. I will just stay in the truck then. I have a really bad feeling and I don't want to go. I spoke again. You aren't staying in my truck alone. Now get out, he said rudely. I got out of the truck and looked over at my best friend. Her face was white and her eyes were wide and round and I knew she felt the same way that I did. We shouldn't be here. The driver of the truck said that this was the back end of the huge ranch. I wouldn't have believed him that this was really Skinwalker Ranch if I didn't feel that it was in every nerve ending of my body. He walked over to an ancient post and pole fence, undid the loop of wire holding up a small gate and laid it on the ground. There was an overgrown two-track road leading up into the darkness, and we followed as he led us up it. The horrible feeling of dread was almost overwhelming, and I felt like I was going to be sick. I wanted to go running back to the truck, but had a deep fear that something would pounce the moment I left the safety of the group. We weren't laughing and joking here. That heaviness was weighing on all of us, and we walked silently through the dark. As we walked, I tried to keep my eyes on my feet but I would occasionally glance to either side of the two-track road. Each time I did, I would see a huge black mass out in the tall grass. I told myself it was just a cow, but each time I looked it was in the same spot off to the left, following our journey to the old homestead. Finally, the driver and leader of our foolish expedition stopped and said that we were almost to the old homestead, that we needed to stay quiet in case the owners were around. As he turned to start walking again, a growl leapt from the darkness, and he stopped and took a step back. He wasn't our fearless leader anymore. His voice shook as he told us it was time to head back to the truck. We walked a little ways back, and then one of our group said they needed to use the bathroom. We stopped by a small stream running along the south end of the property. I was smoking and talking to one of my friends about how relieved I was that we were leaving. I glanced down at the stream at the same time my friend did, just in time to see a black figure emerging from the water. It was not a cow. It was not a coyote. It looked like a too skinny and too tall man. We both screamed and ran back to the road. That was the last straw for everyone, and we all ran the entire way back to the truck. Now I know that is eerie, but kind of uneventful. Have no fear. A few months later, this adventure had slowly left my mind. I had started to convince myself that the figures in the darkness were just cows, and that it probably was just the dark running water playing tricks on my eyes, making me see things emerging from the water that weren't really there. My best friend had come over to my house to sit outside bullshit and smoke cigarettes. We did this pretty frequently. Like I said in my last story, we lived in the middle of nowhere, so dumb things like this were about as much fun as we could have. So, we are sitting in her car, just across the road from my house. Her car is pointed towards the town park, which was just about a block away from my house. There are no other houses on the way to the park, so with the street lamps on at the park, you can basically see everything up there. Oh, look a dear. My friend says suddenly, I could see a set of glowing eyes on the very far end of the park. Oh, yep, there it is, I reply. We watch it as it slowly walks towards the center of the park. In this spot is a huge metal slide or jungle gym thing, 
that is probably 10-12 feet tall. As the deer is walking, I notice that for some reason I can't make out any features of the deer. It seems to always be just out of reach of the street lamps that are dotted throughout the park. The deer is right next to the slide when suddenly it stands up. The eyes that we were watching are suddenly even with the platform of the slide, which would make this deer 10-12 feet tall. Then it starts to walk standing on its hind legs. Me and friend both started panicking. What the F is it? That's not a deer. We keep watching this extremely tall creature cross the park when my friend decided we're driving up there. She locks the doors and we head towards the park. When we were almost there, the eyes had crossed the street and went into the neighborhood across from the park. By the time we got there, whatever it was had vanished. Another few months go by, the event had definitely rattled us, and there was no convincing ourselves that it was a deer. Deer do not walk on their hind legs, and they are not ten feet tall. One night, I am at the same friend's house. This friend lived smack dab in the middle of huge farmland. All around her were pastures. It was very peaceful most of the time. We had spent the night watching movies and hanging out. I went and started my car and we were smoking together on her porch before I left. We were just chatting when suddenly her eyes leave my face and look behind me, and her eyes leave my face and look behind me, and her eyes grow wide. I turn to look and see two glowing red eyes just past the fence into our neighbor's pasture. What the F is that? I manage to squeak out. I don't know. She whispers back. The eyes remain fixed on us for about 30 seconds, then turn to the left, blinked and vanished. We both ran back in the house. I didn't dare go home for another 45 minutes. If my car hadn't been already started, I probably wouldn't have left at all. A couple of years after these events, I was speaking with a youth tribal member that I worked with, and she said something that gives me goosebumps to this day. She told me, It isn't what's on the ranch that you should be afraid of. It's what follows you when you leave. I am convinced that something followed us from Skinwalker Ranch and those terrifying events was something warning us to never go back. I never did, and I never will. I used to work on the north slope of Alaska in the oil industry. The work we were doing required us to travel far out into the Alaska Petroleum Reserve, which is basically just untamed tundra wilderness for hundreds of miles. The oil companies would build these long ice roads in the winter that would lead to exploration drilling pads. Our job was to go out after they finished the initial drilling and test rock formations for their oil-producing qualities. It was mid-January, the sun hadn't quite come up yet. And when I say the sun hadn't come up yet, and when I say the sun hadn't come up, I mean in almost a month and a half, polar nights are intense. The particular well site we were traveling to was about 60 miles west of Alpine, Alaska, deep in the wilderness. Our job took a week, but we finished and were headed back to camp to finish our hitch and go home. At the beginning and end of the ice roads are guard shacks that you have to check in and out of for safety. No cell reception and radios work only up to a distance. If you don't check in or out in a set time, they come looking for you to ensure you're not a popsicle. It was about four in the morning, not that it mattered in the land of endless night, and we were halfway across the ice road. Travel was slow, as the speed limit on the roads is only 25 miles per hour. When something appeared on the road in our headlights, it was a man, in jeans, sneakers, and a hoodie jacket, walking down an ice road in wilderness tundra at 4 a.m., and it was minus 20 degrees outside. It's not unusual for the local Inuit people to be out this far hunting. Maybe his snowmobile broke down and he's trying to get back to the guard shack. Seemed plausible. He didn't acknowledge us as our trucks rolled up next to him. He just kept shuffling forward. He didn't seem cold. His clothing, while totally not appropriate for this extreme weather, appeared warm and dry. We also noticed he wasn't Inuit, but Caucasian. I rolled down my window and asked if he needed any help, and if he was okay. He still didn't acknowledge us, just kept shuffling forward. His face was completely blank, devoid of any thought or emotions. 
The other guys in my truck suggested that maybe he was in an accident and in shock. I continued rolling my truck alongside him as he trudged down the road, still trying to get his attention. Even in this extreme cold, I could occasionally get whiffs of a peculiar smell coming off him. He smelled... acidic. If that makes sense. There was just a lot about this guy that made the hair on my neck stand up. The guy behind me in the truck's crew cab had had enough of all this. He rolled down his window and reached out to grab the guy. He later said he was just going to try and shake him out of his stupor. Before my buddy's hand could reach him, though this walking popsicle spun around and latched onto my buddy's outstretched arm. He glared at my buddy and then at me with this look of pure rage, not removing his hand from his arm. If emotions had a physical temperature, this guy could have melted the entire tundra that night. My buddy groaned in pain as he tried to get his arm free from Mr. Popsicle. At that moment, this guy starts screaming in our faces. There was so much hate and rage and anger in that scream. It was absolutely terrifying. I slammed on the gas and spun out on the ice for a second before the wheels caught and launched us forward. Popsicle Dude still had a hold of my buddy's arm and was trying to pull him out of the truck. He was running alongside the truck while the other guys in the cab held onto my buddy to keep him inside. After several moments, if could only have been a few seconds at most, my buddy tore free from this guy and we hauled ass to the guard shack another thirty miles down the road. We checked in with the guards and reported what we had just seen. The guard was looking at us like we were pulling a prank. But policy said they had to check it out regardless. My buddy's arm was sore and when he pulled back his sleeve there were noticeable bruises in the shape of a hand around his arm. We filed a report with the guard and were told to head back to our camp. None of us really wanted to talk about what happened and it was a quiet drive the rest of the way. We flew home the next day. The next time we saw the guard at this shack, we asked him if they ever saw Mr. Popsicle on his patrols. He told us they searched up and down that ice road for a solid 12-hour shift and saw nothing, not even tracks in the snow leading off the road. He told us it was a good prank and that he'd get us back for making him waste a shift driving around. But it wasn't a prank. Who would make up a story like that? And who would willingly bruise their arm for a dumb prank? We never got a satisfying answer to what happened that evening. I still wonder about that dude. If he even was a dude, the Alaskan tundra is a weird place, and that was just one of my many weird stories from my time up there. I'll work to write down more of my experiences and share them to the appropriate subs. I used to stay at my grandparents' house a lot when I was younger. They wanted to help out and such. They owned a 40-50 acre farm with their house about a quarter mile into the woods. It was summer and we all were going to bed. I always have had trouble falling asleep and was the only one awake and was returning from the bathroom to join my cousin on the top bunk with me in the bottom. The bedroom had one window facing a light post my grandparents had installed. I was just covering myself up when I saw something cast a shadow against the window curtain. Once, then twice it was fast, but I could tell there was something moving outside. I crawled out to the bed, hugging the floor, already scared. I was about a foot from the closed curtain with my eye just above the window seal. I stared out, and nothing happened for a few seconds. Then I saw a figure cast a shadow onto the curtain. It looked like a big dog head, long snout tail pointed ears. It stopped perfectly center of the window frame. It slowly turned its head to face me. I froze, but it then raised up a few inch to show its shoulders. I can only describe it as a wolf head on a human body. It turned away and moved on. People said I was young. It was only a nightmare. It wasn't I remember it too vividly. I forgot to mention that this window was about five feet up from the ground. It was my mother's old room as a child, and when I asked her if she ever saw anything... She paused for several seconds, began to speak, shook her head, and stuttered out a no. She knew the folklore and refused to speak, and we dropped it, but I knew why she responded that way. Never mentioned them aloud. I can't explain this. I'm still scared to be alone at night there. Even typing this gave me goosebumps.
The three of us embarked on a hunt into the depths of a secluded forest, our anticipation palpable as we sought to make the most of our time together. The air was alive with the symphony of rustling leaves and distant bird calls, the perfect backdrop for our quest to hunt pheasant, with rifles slung over our shoulders and camaraderie in our hearts. We ventured into the wilderness. As the day wore on, our paths diverged as we each sought out the best locations to flush out our elusive prey. The forest seemed to envelop me, isolating me from the world beyond its dense foliage. The silence was profound, broken only by my own footsteps and the occasional snap of a twig beneath my boots. But then, as I walked through a particularly dense thicket, a pungent odor invaded my senses. It was a smell like none I had ever encountered, a mixture of decay and something inexplicably otherworldly. My curiosity piqued. I followed the scent, my steps guided by an unsettling combination of unease and fascination. In the distance, I caught sight of a figure that sent shivers down my spine. Towering above me, it stood on two hind legs, its emaciated form defying all reason. Its elongated arms stretched out before it, almost touching the ground in a pose reminiscent of a gorilla. The creature's spine twisted unnaturally, its posture a twisted display of its true height. A bizarre image began to take shape before me, a grotesque hybrid of a bull and a humanoid being. Its skin, bathed in the ethereal glow of moonlight, was a sickly shade of gray. The creature's face was a nightmarish composition, devoid of the features that defined a normal countenance. It gazed at me with eyes that seemed to shimmer with an otherworldly light, casting a strange aura around it. The sight before me was so surreal, so completely unlike anything I had ever encountered, that I couldn't help but raise my rifle in an instinctual response. My hands trembled as I took aim, my heart pounding in my chest. I pulled the trigger the deafening gunshot shattering the silence of the forest. To my shock, the bullet passed straight through the creature as if it were nothing more than a wisp of smoke. My jaw dropped, my mind struggling to comprehend the impossibility of what I had just witnessed. The creature remained unaffected, as if my shot had never occurred. And then, without warning, it vanished, disappearing into the woods as if it were never there. As I stood there, staring at the spot where the creature had stood, a profound sense of puzzlement overcame me. What had I just encountered? Was it a trick of the light? A figment of my imagination? Or something far more inexplicable? When my friends returned, their triumphant expressions from their successful hunts faded as they saw my troubled demeanor. I hesitated then recounted the tale of the bizarre creature I had encountered. The crooked spine, the elongated arms, the deformed face. But their response was not what I had anticipated. Laughter erupted, their voices blending with the rustling leaves of the forest. They accused me of concocting a tall tale, of perhaps indulging in substances that altered my perception. Their taunt stung, and I felt a mix of frustration and resignation. How could I expect them to believe the unbelievable? As we trudged back to our camp, the scent of the forest mingling with the taste of uncertainty, I couldn't help but replay the encounter in my mind. The memory of that otherworldly creature lingered, a question mark suspended in the air, and even as my friend's skepticism echoed in my ears, I knew that the forest held secrets beyond our comprehension, Secrets that would forever haunt my thoughts. I live in Australia, and as a teenager of about 13 or 14, being a person from an underprivileged and mostly neglected background, and my escape at time was to disappear into the bush on my own, very often for a few days at a time. I was in an area that was off-limits to people, as it formed part of a very large water catchment. I had no fear of being out there on my own, and my biggest concern was being caught by a waterboard ranger or running into other people. 
This was back in the 80s with no mobile phones or GPs available. I had camped out for the night on a hill that I had stayed at many times before, and I knew the lay of the land well, and come the morning I decided to head back to the road that was about five kilometers away via a ridgeline. It was very rare to come across other people out here, but this morning I could hear people talking in the distance in the direction I had to travel. I felt that I really needed to avoid these people discovering I was out there in this very elevated place. So I decided to go around them by walking down into a valley and to follow the bottom of the valley for some distance and then make my way back uphill to the ridge behind them. I had reached the bottom of the valley and walking along very quietly, watching where I stepped, not breaking any branches or snapping twigs as the sound would travel a long way. I often would startle wildlife when I walked out in these areas and was quite used to seeing a kangaroo or wallaby suddenly spring up out of nowhere and bound off to a safer distance away from me. And that is what I expected from this kangaroo that had just stood up about 15 meters in front of me, except it didn't bound away, it just looked at me. I was looking back at it. I realized this kangaroo was much larger than the ones I would normally come across, and he had a number of mates with him, maybe eight or nine of them all, within about 50 meters of me, and they were not going anywhere. They stood up tall and looked right at me, and were about twice my size and very muscled up. I stood where I was for about five minutes with them, looking at me, and me looking right back. We were at a standoff. I was considering walking through this group, but by this stage I had started to get quite intimidated by their total lack of fear of me and their sheer size. I decided my best option was to back out the way I had come feeling more confident they would just go back to their grazing once I was out of sight, so that is what I did. This was a very unsettling experience for me to be intimidated by something I expected would avoid me. But due to the isolation of this place, I don't think they had ever come across people before, so they didn't have the fear of man that most others would have. After that, I never went back into the catchment area knowing there was a big mob in there and I was more afraid of them than they were of me. When I was in college, I worked a couple of odd jobs to help pay the bills. They were mostly mundane, but one shook me to my core. I was working for the city parks and lakes division at a local lake. It was a job that did involve some hard work, cleaning and repairing the boats and motors, but it also had more than enough downtime. Whenever there was no work to do, my co-workers and I would sit around in the shade on the dock and talk. When I first started, it was mostly the other guys telling me stories about the lake. Most of them were your run-of-the-mill fishermen stories, but there were a few with a much darker feel. It wasn't long before I started to have my own odd-and-outers in the park. I split my time working there between the boat dock and working night security in the campground. One night, as I was driving the work truck around the lake into the campgrounds, part of my hourly patrol, I saw a pale blue light just above the road, probably 100 feet in front of my truck. As I got close, the light grew in intensity. Then, when I was about 30 feet away, it took on a smoky appearance and dissipated in the night sky. That incident was definitely odd, but not at all in a scary sort of way. The next two incidents I had during the night shift, which led to me refusing the work the shift anymore, were definitely more disturbing and physical. Maybe a month after I saw the floating light, I was driving down the hill from the campground back to the lake when I saw a man run out of the bushes. He was dirty, terrified, and wearing only his underwear. The first thought I had was that he was on drugs. The campground was cheap, so we did get our fair share of homeless drug addicts. I quickly realized that wasn't the case, however. The second he saw my truck, he came running towards me, clearly not looking to hurt me, but rather for me to save him. When he was still a few yards away, I was going to open my window to ask what was wrong when suddenly I saw a second person run out of the bushes. This time it was a woman. Her t-shirt was torn and dirty, her legs scratched from running through the bushes without pants on I was confused to say the least, but the confusion quickly turned to anxiety when I saw she was carrying a large knife. Obviously, this is what the man was running from. He didn't seem to notice her at first, so I motioned to the passenger door, hoping he would get it so we could drive off and call the police before she got too close. 
As I was motioning to him was when he spotted her. He looked me in the eyes, and I could tell he knew he should run to the truck. But I watched as the panic overtook him, and he ran. The woman chased after, both heading across the road down into the brush towards the lake. I drove off to the park ranger station and called the police. I could hear the echoes of the man screaming and the woman's yelling. I talked to the police after they handled the situation. The man had been stabbed, but he would live. I went home, obviously shaken. Two months after that, I was driving the truck through the campground, and I saw what looked like a military-style duffel bag hanging from a tree. The closer I got, the more definition the shape took. By the time I was at the campsite, I already had the police on the phone. I could hear the wife sleeping in the tent, but I decided I would let the police wake her and inform her that her husband had hanged himself. I never worked the night shift again. I thought if I worked strictly during the day on the boat dock, all this would stop. I was wrong. I did work an entire summer without incident, but it was in the winter that it happened. It was a cold winter, by San Diego standards at least. Many times my shift would start before the sunrise, having to get the boats ready for all the fishermen coming in the early morning hours trying for trout. On one particular morning I got to work around 5 a.m. It was cold in the mid-thirties, with frost still on the ground. I walked straight onto the dock and into the shed we used as a workshop. Most of the mornings the only employees at the park were me, a young woman who worked the concession stand and a park ranger. Often the park ranger would come down to the dock about twenty minutes into my shift to make sure I had everything I needed. On this morning I was inside the workshop with the door closed, space heater on, and was working on a broken motor. I could tell when another person walked onto the dock because it would make the whole dock bob slightly in the water. I felt the dock rise and fall beneath my feet and kept at my work, assuming it was just the ranger. I could tell the footsteps went up to the door, paused for a second, then continued towards the end of the dock. After about five minutes without feeling the footsteps return, I opened the door to see what the ranger was up to. I looked to the end of the dock, and no one was there. I assumed I must have mistaken the slight waves of the water for footsteps, but noticed the water was smooth as glass, and that all the boats were tied up. I took a step out of the shop to get a better look and could hear the crunch of frost under my feet. When I looked down, I noticed that there were two sets of footprints. One was mine, going from the shore straight to the shop. The second went past the shop, down the edge of the dock and stopped. There were no prints going off the dock. I turned and saw the ranger walk towards the dock down the shore. I quit once he got within earshot. I was a 21-year-old male, 240 pounds. Not a small or weak-looking guy. I was wanting to lose some weight for a while now and had been going on walks for a bit, sometimes during the evening or very late at night. It was Florida and it gets hot unless it's nighttime, plus, like I said, I'm a big dude. I got nothing to worry about. Or so I thought. One fateful night, I decide to go out walking around my neighborhood around 3 a.m. in like a big puffy jacket and black pants. Feel like in this situation, I would be the creepy person someone would be scared of. My walk was going good as usual and was actually getting close to the end of it. Then this, like old school wood, paneled passes by and goes into a driveway somewhat in front of me. I barely think anything of it. Always three... Six cars go by on one of these late-night excursions. What happens next is what unsettled me. This van pulls back out of the driveway with its lights off after I pass by the driveway. Luckily, I wasn't listening to any music or else I wouldn't have heard it. The van then proceeds to pull out and drive towards me and stops right in front of me. At this point, I know I don't want to end up like some kind of horror movie character so I book it in the opposite direction. I go down an off-branching street and keep going down these random streets to give me as much time as possible. I end up hiding in some random-ass bushes in someone's yard and stay there for a lyle bit. I wanted to text my mom, but I was scared and didn't want the light from my phone to give me away. So I watch for any sign of them. Nothing for five minutes. 
Just as you think the coast is clear, boom, I hear a car coming down the street, and it's those men but with their lights on this time. I'm pretty hidden in these bushes right against someone's house so they just go by, but my heart is beating so fast and I'm terrified in this moment. I wait a little bit more till I truly believe the coast is clear and get back to my house. I wake up my mom and we call the cops and I give them as much info as possible. They said they would patrol the neighborhood and I don't hear anything more. I just can't help thinking about that event and what their motives were. I always tried to debunk shit like that, but all their actions pointed to wanting to do something to me. But what did they want to do? I'm not a pretty young lady. I'm a very large, menacing dude. My neighborhood is not even nice enough to rob. Very just middle class. And what the F am I going to have on me while walking at 2 a.m.? So I just can't help but think maybe they didn't want to kidnap me or mug me, but kill me. It freaks me out to this day. I experienced a handful of peculiar occurrences, but they ceased until I met my wife. In our first apartment, an unseen presence would tap on the soles of my feet as I slept. Every other day for two months, after returning home from work, the microwave clock would read 5.14, while the one on my nightstand read 7.14, despite all other clocks displaying the correct time. In our kitchen hung a wine bottle holder. My wife always positioned the labels outward, but occasionally all bottles except the top one and bottom one would inexplicably have their labels facing inward. The bullet casings from my grandfather's funeral flag, lined up on the bookshelf, would occasionally rearrange themselves. When our lease expired, we moved to another apartment where the only oddity was the persistent foot-tapping as I tried to sleep. The year following, we built our own house. In the two years we've lived here, a variety of oddities has persisted. I've noticed shadows without sources, and the foot-tapping continues. Our cat and dog often seem to follow something invisible around the room with their gaze. A small pig statue on a dining room shelf rotates on its own. Footsteps echo on the wooden, laminate floor we installed in the living room, day and night. The wine bottles also persist in their rotation, as in our first apartment. My wife finds these events somewhat unnerving, but we mostly view them as a source of entertainment. We've made a game of spotting what's changed each time we walk into the house. Our resident ghost which we've affectionately named Bud, hasn't ever displayed any violent or threatening behavior. In fact, we've taken to talking to Bud. However, the day we returned home to find all four stove burners switched on twice in a row did unsettle us. After the second incident, I addressed Bud directly, requesting that he not leave the stove on and risk burning the house down. Since then, it hasn't happened again. Through all these occurrences, I can't help but believe in the presence of something beyond our understanding. I often wonder what prompted this entity to make itself known and why Bud has chosen to follow us. Despite the peculiarities, it's been mostly harmless, and in a strange way, Bud has become a part of our family. The evening of August 21, 1955 was one that would forever be etched in the memories of five adults and seven children who found themselves at the Hopkinsville, Kentucky police station, recounting a truly bizarre tale. Among the group were two brothers, Elmer and John Sutton, and their acquaintance O.P. Baker, who all stood before the authorities with a story that defied belief. According to their account, they had been staying overnight at a farmhouse when they witnessed an astonishing event an unidentified flying saucer had landed near their location. As if that wasn't strange enough, what followed was even more bewildering. Little men, as they described them, began to swarm around the house, peering at the terrified families as they desperately sought to gain entry. It was a scene of utter disbelief. John Sutton and Billy Ray Taylor another member of the group, claimed that they had valiantly fought off these otherworldly beings for several hours, armed with nothing but a shotgun and a pistol. The courage they displayed in the face of the unknown was commendable. Eventually, they made the decision to leave and seek help from the police, 
leaving the peculiar creatures behind. The descriptions provided by the witnesses painted a vivid picture of these little men. They were said to be short, resembling monkeys, with elongated arms and webbed hands adorned with sharp talons. Their eyes were large and striking, set off by an unusual brightness, while their ears came to a distinct point. An artist from the Evansville Press, Larry Hill, even sketched an image based on these descriptions, which was published alongside the initial reports of the sighting in the newspaper. Naturally, the Hopkinsville police took the matter seriously and launched an investigation into the incident. However, their findings failed to align with the fantastical account put forth by the witnesses. Outside the farmhouse, they discovered no tracks or any other signs that a spacecraft had landed. The only evidence they encountered were the bullet holes caused by the gunshots fired from within the house. Furthermore, another officer reported witnessing a meteor shower in the vicinity, but no flying saucer. As news of the Hopkinsville goblins or little men spread, the media played its part in fueling the curiosity and fascination surrounding the event. It was during this time that the term little green men gained popularity as a generic phrase for extraterrestrial beings, even though the witnesses never mentioned the color green in their original interviews. Unsurprisingly, not everyone readily accepted the notion that the attackers were indeed beings from outer space. Alternative explanations emerged, floating intriguing possibilities. Some suggested that test flight monkeys involved in rocket experiments might have crashed in the area, while others, in a tongue, in cheek manner, proposed that the visitors were nothing more than Democrats turned green with envy due to President Dwight Eisenhower's immense popularity. Decades have passed since that fateful night in Hopkinsville, and the true nature of the incident remains a mystery. It stands as a testament to the enduring allure of the unknown, a captivating chapter in the annals of unexplained phenomena that continues to intrigue and bewilder those who hear the extraordinary tale of the Hopkinsville encounter. Over the past two years, I have repeatedly saw sightings of an inhuman form lurking just beyond clear view. For context, I live in Ohio, along the Ohio River, just a mile or two from West Virginia, and the first time I saw what I now believe to be a windigo watching me curiously from the wood line just beyond my backyard. I've then seen what I believe to be the same creature coming home from late-night shifts. There is a remote turn where I have to turn my high beams off, and seemingly intentionally, every time I turn them off, I see a silhouette of something rush across the road on all fours before reaching the other side and returning to a bipedal stance. I've tried turning my high beams on to catch a glimpse of it on several occasions, but cannot react fast enough to catch it. Is there any way this is a windigo or any other cryptid? My aunt and uncle were pretty rich. My uncle's family owned Kearns, and he designed airplanes for Boeing as a career. My aunt won the lottery. So between the two of them, they were loaded. They bought a large plot of land in Southern California that I would describe as 30% desert, 60% forest, 10% mountains. It was ridiculously hot and dry, but not so hot and dry that plants and trees couldn't grow. My cousin and I never had a shortage of places to explore. When we were kids, they were the only house for miles in any direction. So we had plenty too of woods to explore, small mountains to climb, and wildlife to experience. Because of the climate, we really only ever saw lizards, rattlesnakes, tarantulas, and coyotes. Can't say I ever saw a deer in those woods. That's why it seemed like such a desert. This story took place in 2003. Anyway, when I was 13 and my cousin was 14, we decided to see what was beyond a large hill we hadn't yet gone over. So we set off, and at the other side of the hill, we found a dirt path that looked like it had been carved through the brush by animals using it as a natural path. But we also saw deep but thin grooves in the dirt that showed the telling signs of a tire, a single tire, we deduced that it was probably a wheelbarrow, but there were no human footprints near it, 
that indicated anyone was pushing it. So what the hell was? Being young and dumb, we followed the tire track and it led us down into what I could only describe as a natural cul-de-sac of rocky cliffs. The only way out was the way we came in or we had to climb the 60-foot cliffs on all sides of us. Trees grew here and the ground was muddier, giving us a clearer look at the tire tracks. Still no other human footprints but our own. There were animal prints. Little imprints of claw marks that showed lizards had clearly been here. Coyote paws checkered the mud and even the broken lines of snake tracks that alternates between thin and wide. The usual fauna we saw had all seen this place. We found the wheelbarrow just at the base of the cliff, furthest from where we had come in. But that isn't all we found. We found clothes all over the place, some clean, some filthy, some for older people, some for children. We also found toys, nothing mainstream. These were handmade, carved from wood or chipped from stone. They were pretty detailed figurines. Still, no human tracks. We found shoes, but no shoe prints. No bare feet. We also found a hole in the cliff. It was a near-perfect circle that went about 30 feet into the cliff. We always brought flashlights on these trips, so my cousin shined his flashlight into the hole. The rock all around us that made up the cliff was red and orange, but the bottom of the hole was covered with a grey dust and the bottom of the hole is covered with a grey dust, and the back of the hole ended against a wall of rock of the same grey colour. It was the same colour as the figurines we had found, and I went and grabbed one to try and compare, just curious to see if it was carved from the same stone, because whoever would drill thirty feet into a red cliff to get to some boring grey rock in the middle just to carve little toys out of it, well, they were odd but dedicated. Then we finally took notice of the size of the hole we were staring into. It was small, really small. At the age of 13, I was only 5 feet 4 and really thin, and there was no way I would ever be able to squeeze into that hole. We contemplated what the hole was for, since clearly nobody strong enough to carve into the wall could fit in there. As we tossed ideas around for a couple minutes, we stopped at the very clear sound of a whimper, followed by the clear clatter of rock on rock, like throwing a small stone at a boulder. From inside the hole, my cousin shined his light back in as fast as he could. Nothing. Still an empty, dusty hole in a cliff, except for one rock about 15 feet in that we both were pretty sure was not there before. So something had thrown a rock out way from inside the empty hole. I still had one of the figurines in my hand. So I threw it hard toward the back of the hole, and the very instant it met the back wall, we saw an arm and hand shoot out from around a corner we didn't know was there, and snatch the figurine and pull it into the unknown. The arm was human. Ish. Now, we only saw the arm for a split second as it grabbed the figurine and withdrew in an instant, but we both noticed a few details that we confirmed to each other. It looked like a small child's arm, but it was multicolored, it was a pale blue along the underside of the forearm and bicep, but the same reddish color of the rock around it everywhere else, and he hands were bigger than should have been on an arm of that size. But the most noticeable was an unnatural bend in the arm that made it look like it had a second elbow. The arm seemed to unfold to snatch the figurine like a scorpion tail stretching to strike. We got the hell out of there fast. We went back and told my uncle about it, and he decided to come back with us to check it out. The way we described it, he was worried it might be a runaway child or a human trafficking pit stop. When we got there with him, all the clothes we had found were gone. The wheelbarrow was gone. Still no footprints except for ours. The only thing that remained were the figurines of stone and wood. We showed my uncle the hole. He shined a light into it and saw nothing. Although he was curious as to what the hole's purpose was, it wasn't natural, obviously. We grabbed one of the figurines and threw it to the back of the hole again. Nothing, no arm to grab it this time. My uncle didn't believe us about what we had seen, but after looking around the area, he found some things we hadn't. There were rock carvings in the cliffs, illegible letters and drawings. 
The trees had scars that looked like stab marks. Some of the bark on other trees was shredded or beaten to splinters. He called the cops, and we made a final trip back to show them the spot. This time my cousin brought some of his own stuff. A remote control car with a video camera taped to the top. We got back to the place with a couple of officers and they looked around. They too were most curious about the hole. We made another attempt at throwing a figurine into it, but again, nothing happened. As the cops were talking to my uncle, we all heard that same whimper my cousin and I had heard when we were alone. My uncle, the cops, and my cousins and I all heard it coming from the hole. The cops shined their light into it and saw nothing. We threw another figurine. Nothing. So my cousin pulled out his little remote control car with the camera taped to it and put it in the hole and drove it to the end, turned it to look in all directions and then drove back. We all looked at the footage. In the back of the hole, where we had seen the arm shoot out to grab the figurine, there were dozens of similar figurines all standing and arranged in neat lines and formations all looking in the same direction. But the hole ended there. There was nothing beyond that. Another dead end, or so it seemed. The whimper had no source. We all got out of there, and the cops said they would look into it. The following morning, my cousin and I woke up to find one of the figurines sitting on the dresser of my cousin's room. He gave it to me. I still have it. It still freaks me out. My brother is in the military and was doing a training operation in a forest the Canadian military has specifically for such activities. He had just finished a day mission and was being sent back in for a night mission. For the mission, my brother and another soldier were supposed to navigate in the dark to specific locations and find glow sticks set up in the bush. They got dropped off and were making good time finding three out of five glow sticks without issue. The fourth glow stick is when they began to struggle. According to my brother, him and his buddy were using night vision goggles which turn everything a green color and any light becomes very bright. My brother's buddy suddenly exclaims right there. And my brother sees a glowing light seemingly suspended in midair. He quickly walks towards the light when it suddenly starts moving and becomes two lights. He falls backward and Crab walks away from the big-ass bear in front of him. They hadn't seen the glow stick but the reflection of the minimal light in the bear's eyes. The bear was standing at its full height as they approached. As they both scrambled backwards and fired blanks up into the air to scare it off, it dropped down and stalked off into the bush. My brother and his buddies skipped the fourth glow stick and told their superiors about the bear encounter. They said they were lucky it wasn't a mother bear or it could have been ugly. The superiors told him after that, the blanks they send them in with are basically useless because the animals in the area are so used to sounds of gunfire and explosions. The air grew colder with each passing day and the grip of winter tightened around our remote village. The fields, once lush with crops, now lay barren, the earth frozen and unyielding. Hunger gnawed at our bellies and desperation hung heavy in the frosty air. It was a time of hardship, a time when the strength of our tribe was tested like never before. But as the winter nights grew longer, something more sinister than famine began to plague our community. Whispers carried on the frigid wind, tales of strange occurrences and unexplained disappearances that left our hearts heavy with fear. The elders spoke in hushed voices, invoking the name that sent shivers down our spines. Wendigo. The Wendigo, a malevolent spirit born of desperation and despair, was said to prey on the hungry and desperate, its hunger insatiable, its thirst for suffering unquenchable. As the story spread like wildfire through the village, fear took root in every heart and a palpable unease settled over us. It was in this climate of dread that Red Hawk, a young woman known for her resourcefulness and courage, emerged as our beacon of hope. With fiery determination burning in her eyes, 
she accepted the elder's call to embark on a treacherous journey into the heart of the wilderness to confront the Wendigo and free our village from its sinister grasp. Clad in furs and carrying only the ancestral wisdom passed down through generations, Red Hawk ventured into the icy wilderness. The villagers gathered to bid her farewell, their prayers and hopes carried on the wind that whipped through the snow-covered trees. I watched as she disappeared into the forest, her figure gradually swallowed by the wilderness. Days turned into nights, and the village held its collective breath, awaiting Red Hawk's return. We stoked the fires and whispered stories of her bravery, each tale a testament to the indomitable spirit that fueled her mission. Yet, as the moon waxed and waned, doubts began to gnaw at our hope. Had the Wendigo claimed another victim? Was our village doomed to suffer forever? And then, on the eve of the coldest night, Red Hawk emerged from the forest, her steps weary but her spirit unbroken. Her eyes held a fire that seemed to burn brighter than ever, a fire that spoke of trials faced and fears conquered. Gathered around the fire, we listened as she recounted her journey, her words painting vivid pictures of the trials she had endured. She had navigated treacherous terrain, faced bone. She had navigated treacherous terrain, faced bone, chilling cold, and confronted her own deepest fears. She had ventured into the heart of darkness, where the Wendigo's presence was strongest, and there, amidst the howling winds and shadowy trees, she had called upon the wisdom of her ancestors. With every step, Red Hawk had confronted her own demons, recognizing the seeds of desperation and despair that lived within her own heart. Armed with this self-awareness, she had stood before the Wendigo, its form shifting and ethereal, its hunger a palpable force in the air. But she had not faltered. With unwavering courage, she had spoken the words passed down through generations, words that carried the strength of all those who had come before her. As Red Hawk's tale unfolded, we felt a collective sense of awe and wonder. Her bravery had not only confronted the Wendigo, but had channeled the collective power of our tribe's ancestry. The Wendigo, weakened by her resolve and the weight of generations united against it, had been banished, its malevolence fading like a dissipating mist. Red Hawk's journey had not only saved us from the clutches of the Wendigo, but it also taught us the importance of facing our fears and acknowledging our own vulnerabilities. With her guidance, we rebuilt our village, the resilience of our tribe stronger than ever before. And as winter gave way to spring, the fields flourished and hope bloomed anew. We remembered Red Hawk's courageous journey, a beacon of light that had pierced the darkness and united us in strength and spirit.